The sermon text today is Nahum chapter 2, but beforehand, we're just going to read an extended portion from 2 Kings chapter 18, uh, 2 Kings chapter 18 from verse 13 uh, to 35. 2 Kings 18 verse 13 onwards. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lashish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, three hundred talents of silver and thirty talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that uh, Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent Tartan, uh, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh with a great army to Lashish, to king Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria, I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, it is without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it. The the Lord uh, said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah, said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Until I come and take uh, take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, 
a land of bread and vineyard, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his hand, his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Serevaim, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Syria, Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the land have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? And now the sermon text, which is Nahum chapter 2. Nahum chapter 2. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. As many parents will tell you, humans are born with a natural aversion to facing their fears. Whether it's uh, sleeping in your room alone for the first time, or uh, with the lights off, or leaving mom on the first day of school, or even facing a bully on the playground, fears seem like something better avoided. The same is often true when we grow up, although we may experience much more scary events. And there, as adults, it's not just the fear of the unknown, but it's the fear of things that we have experienced ourselves. But as many medical professionals might tell you, sometimes it is therapeutic to face your fears. Coming face to face with the trauma of the past may be just what's needed to give you relief and a hope for the future. Well, our Lord employs a dose of this therapeutic wisdom in Nahum's second poem. 
in the controlled environment of a prophecy, the Lord exposes the people of Judah to a dose of the violence that they have experienced in the past. See, this vivid imagery of war in the prophecy would be all too familiar for the Judahites. They'd suffered grotesque violence at the hands of the Assyrians. But in addition, the Lord uses this very violence to demonstrate that he has not forgotten what Assyria did to Judah. Their evil acts will be reckoned for, and justice will be accomplished. So, as we consider how the Lord here promises to Judah that he will judge their enemies and to deliver them, we obtain a foreshadow of the comfort offered to us by the Lord Jesus Christ as we await his return. Well, having established Nineveh's guilt and uh, declaring its destruction in chapter 1, Nahum now describes this, uh, this actual destruction itself occurring in the second poem, chapter 2. Suddenly, a nameless scatterer arrives for a military conflict against the city of Nineveh. Right up front, we have the irony here of an empire who scattered many other nations. Itself is about to be scattered. And the army at Nineveh is told with a series of four instructions that they are to prepare for a battle. The question is, how does one prepare for a battle against the divine warrior of the first poem, the one who comes in with such power and vengeance and destruction that the earth itself melts. How futile it is to prepare for the unpreparable. Well, following the battle announcement, Nahum offers an interpretation of the conflict. Nineveh is being attacked for a particular reason, and that particular reason is that it had laid waste to Jacob and Israel and had ruined the shoot of their vines, essentially. In other words, rather than prospering, Jacob and Israel have been humiliated. But these are God's covenant people. And so, in connection to the Lord's promise to Israel in Leviticus 26, we know that although Judah's experienced affliction for their sin against the Lord, the Lord promised that he would not abandon his people. Remember, he said, I will not break my covenant with them. Instead, I will remember the covenant covenant that I have made with Jacob and Abraham. The Lord is going to restore their majesty and their pride, which is an idiom for delivering them from the, the judgment that they've been under, the curse that they've been under. The majesty here, however, is primarily concerned with the Lord being enthroned among his people. This is the purpose that the Lord expressed in Exodus chapter 15 when he said, But I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So to judge Nineveh is to deliver Judah and for the Lord of the covenant to be glorified. So verses 1 and 2, therefore, give us a context for the upcoming battle. The judgment of God's enemies is also the deliverance of his people. And so the remainder of the poem contains what we could think of as a twin reversal. Jacob and Israel are restored in majesty, but they are restored through the downfall of the most powerful city imaginable, Nineveh. 
What comes next in the, in the following eight verses is a vivid and violent description of Nineveh's fall. Starting from the outside regions and then moving to the city walls, then to the palace, then to the temple, and finally to the treasury itself at the heart of the city, the, the totality of the destruction is recounted for us in detail. And what this, the force of this is to put us in the middle of the battle scene to feel the weight, to feel the chaos, to feel the violence, the terror, and the dread. And this is that controlled exposure that we spoke of. Recalling the battle would cause the Judeans to relive their terror. That is some severe PTSD, possibly. We know from studies done amongst those who've been victims of uh, genocide that at least 60% of the population experiences PTSD and depression. There's no doubt that the Judites would have been terrified even reading about this judgment. And we know that the terror that they experienced was quite shocking to modern consciences. We have from relief documents and, and uh, I mean, battle reliefs and documents from the Assyrians, we know that they impaled bodies on sticks, they cut out tongues, they put people's heads on totem poles, they dragged people around with rings through their lips like cattle. This is disgusting stuff. Uh, if, if Judah had a media regulator, this would certainly get a trigger warning. Uh, this would have caused them to recall all of this terror. And the battle, descript- the battle scene begins with the description of the attackers. Have a look at verse 3. There the, the shields are made of a, a hide which is tanned red, and the soldiers are dressed in a, in a crimson color, uh, evoking fear. Next, we're told that there are chariots and spears. See, following what would likely have begun with a large volley of arrows uh, toward the, the, those being attacked, the spearmen would then charge while chariots are, are wreaking devast- devastation against the city's defenses. And verse 4 describes the speed of these chariots. They're racing madly to and fro, back and forward, flashing and darting. This is an ironic detail in itself because Assyria made extensive use of chariots in its military conquests, and here they are being devastated by the very same means they employed. Uh, Chariots are less likely to be used on attacks in smaller cities, but Nineveh is no small city. It has a, it's an entirely walled area that's about three miles long and about two thirds of a mile wide. The stone wall that was built around Nineveh is colossal, 65 feet high, 50 feet wide, and with a further adjoining smaller wall of 13 feet wide that stretches up to 15 feet tall. It was so wide that multiple chariots could race in a row together on the top of the wall. So in this chaos, the scene switches suddenly to the Assyrian king. Have a look at verse 5. He, he, it says that he remembers his officers. And what this is meant to convey to us is that this came upon them so quickly and devastatingly that they weren't able to prepare as they were instructed uh, in verse 1 there. So he's not able to prepare, so he sends his men stumbling in an uncoordinated rush to the wall. But it's too late. The attackers have already set up their mobile protective shield, which, uh, uh, which protects the 
the attackers while they are trying to break the defenses. And then what happens in verse 6 is the, the breach of the city wall. And this is done using flood uh, imagery. Now, it's true that there were river gates uh, as part of, the, of, as part of the, the wall because Sennacherib had built conduits to bring water to nourish the gardens that he built by the palace and then out into the rest of the city. But what we should understand by this flooding is that it's metaphorical for the enemy is now breaking in. The attackers have been successful breaching the city and they're like an overwhelming flood. Now, this is something we should expect because of the judgment imagery that we got in the, the first poem in chapter 1, that the Lord comes in judgment like, a, like an overwhelming flood. And similarly, the palace melting, that's symbolic of the heart, the very heart of the city falling. Further, in a bit of irony here, Assyrian kings claim to be like raging floods that swept their enemies away. And here, the Assyrian king himself is experiencing a serious turn of the tides. Next, verse 7 describes a scene that's a little difficult to interpret. We're uncertain of exactly what the phrase translated its mistress actually means. Some have suggested that the subject is the queen, which, given the reference to the palace, could make sense. But the verb is used of placement of an object, So what we should understand here is that what's likely being referred to is the idol representing the goddess Ishtar. As we mentioned in in chapter 1, Ishtar is the primary patron deity of the city, and she is the goddess of war. And the, the verb here translated stripped is better actually rendered was put into exile. So essentially the idol representing the, uh, the patron goddess of war is sent out into exile. You've got to love the poetic justice of this because we mentioned that Assyria, when they plundered other nations, they would grab the idols from those cities and bring them and put them in their own, uh, their own pantheon of gods. Think about this. Remember the Lord in chapter 1, that first poem, had promised that he would cut off the idols, cut off the carved and graven images from the city of Nineveh. And here it is taking place. And at the same time, the goddess of war is shown to be powerless. This is actually something where you can understand how the, the Psalms speak of the Lord laughing in derision. Because think of it this way. There goes your goddess of war being carried off on the back of a chariot. How powerless your goddess was to deliver you. After the mocking that we read in Second Kings, chapter 18, how fitting that the Lord now comes to vindicate his name in vengeance. And if we understand that this refers to the, the goddess or the idol of the goddess, then it makes sense that the slave girls are the priests lamenting the loss of their mistress. So they sob with rolling sounds like doves, and they beat their breasts in a gesture of total despair. She's gone. And next we get pool imagery 
in verse 8. And this refers to how Nineveh, once it's full and is emptied of all its power. Any of you who own a pool and have had a crack in the side know that once that crack starts, the, the whole pool's water volume can empty. And just like that, Nineveh has lost its power. And the instruction that comes next, halt, halt. This is the only speech by Ninevites in the whole book. And it is an instruction for the officers to stop fleeing. Seeing that the city has fallen, Nineveh's own officers are running away. Other officers are telling them to stay, but none of them returns. All is lost. The foolish Assyrians have built their house on the sands of pride, violence, and hubris. And the winds and rains of God's judgment have come and blown against it. And great is the fall of this house. Now, as we know, there is no plundering until there is incapacitation. Have a look at verse 9. The city, having been incapacitated, is now free to be plundered. And so the treasury is what is plundered next. The treasury is essentially the fuel that powers the engine of Assyria's violence, uh, uh, and that empowers them to go out and to take the wealth from other nations. Uh, Silver and gold is shorthand for all kinds of wealth. Uh, We know that from the Assyria's uh, records, they plundered things like uh, silver, gold, precious stones, obelixes, various idols, and, and things like that. And the great volume of it here, it says that there was it's just countless treasures, is essentially a memorial to Assyria's blood guilt. Because this wasn't all derived from pure voluntary commerce. A lot of this was plunder itself. And so the irony now is that the Lord is coming and doing to the plunderer what they had done to others. And this should just show us the instability of earthly wealth and power, because one day they were the most rich and powerful city imaginable, and the next day it sat with an empty vault. As we read in Second Kings 18, the Rabshakeh interpreted Hezekiah's stripping of the gold and the silver from the temples in Jerusalem as evidence of the Lord's impotence. But here then, the plundering of Assyria's gold does the same thing. The Lord comes and avenges his name in defeating Assyria's gods. So what we have next is essentially a summary in verse 10, a summary of the first first large section there in verses 3 to 9. And the syllables and sounds in Hebrew are piled up on one another, and this is an, an evidence of the overwhelming devastation that's being reflected in the poetry itself. The population of Nineveh has felt what the Judahites themselves had been subject to. A melting heart here means a loss of courage. There's no will to defend the city. The knocking knees indicates there's a total emotional overwhelm. There's a physical collapse at the devastation. All strength and vigor fades as the people feel sick to their stomachs. Even their faces turn white as sheets. And what we know is that means they felt that they were ready to run. When the body is sensing that it needs to run, the blood pools away from the face and towards the muscles ready to run in fear and terror. 
So the very terror that Assyria had afflicted on other nations is now being turned back against them, and they're experiencing it themselves. What was once a great military empire experiences a shocking devastation that leaves everyone shaking in their boots. So what we have then is that the destruction of Nineveh is cast as the reversal of the fortunes of Judah. Then there's a little bit of a switch in tone when in the next two verses, verse 11 to 12, the Lord taunts Assyria with a rhetorical question. And here to do so, he employs, interestingly, a lion metaphor. And Nineveh is represented as a den of Assyrian lions. And this is fitting for two main reasons. The first is, lions did exist in the ancient Near East, and they posed to, uh, quite a significant threat to the, to the people and to their livestock, uh, sheep and, and cattle. So a general duty of a king, as part of his responsibility to protect his people, is to maintain control over the lion population. So he, the king would go on lion hunts. As royal shepherd, he's essentially protecting his people as a flock. A quote from an older Assyrian king uh, stated, I killed on foot 120 lions with my wildly outstanding assault. In addition, 800 lions I felled from my light chariot. And Ashurbanipal, who was likely the king at the time, he said that he, he was like a royal savior, the only one who could eliminate the lion problem. So for the Assyrians, the lion hunt is charged with some pretty serious religious significance. What happens here is the Assyrian king is portrayed as a shepherd, as a divine shepherd who is taking chaos and making order for his people. Secondly, the reason this is, other reason this is fitting is, although kings, the Assyrian kings boasted about killing lions, they actually called themselves lions as well. Lions who prowled and destroyed their enemies and maintained large uh, uh, hunting grounds, essentially, made up of other nations. And so uh, Assyrian kings wanted to be painted as these uh, powerful lions leading every attack uh, in the empire, that they're omnipresent, in the middle, engaged with every battle that took place. Uh, One of the kings described himself as a raging lion against his enemies which is a way of him describing his power, his frightfulness, and his superiority in the created order, able to bring uh, order out of chaos. What's curious, though, is if you look at the details, what we have described in this metaphor about the lion's behavior, it actually doesn't match what's true about lions in reality. For example... Lionesses take cover under den-like thickets to give birth, but that's it. Otherwise, they move around with the cubs, and they don't actually live in dens. In fact, they live under shady acacia-like shade-providing trees. And while male lions do occasionally hunt, it's uh, lionesses who do the, excuse the pun, lion's share of the the work. Uh, and, And further, there is no eating of prey taking place in the dens. Uh, Sometimes lions will drag larger animals uh, downhill slightly towards a shadier or cooler place where they can eat, like near near a stream, river, or under a tree. But the eating takes place generally out in the open. So these things don't really match how things work in reality. But 
That's not really a problem, because that's not how metaphors work, and we all know it. Rather, what's happening here is understandable imagery about the lions is being applied to the Assyrians. And it's especially fitting and cuttingly ironic, given the claims that were made by the Assyrian kings. So here, Nineveh is pictured in 11 and 12 like a den, a place where the king's offspring are nourished, where the queen lives and is fed and can protect the cubs, and where they are undisturbed. You see, at the height of its military power, Assyria feels like the apex predator. There's no other animal that could lay a challenge against them. They're the top of the food chain. Or so they thought. And that's the power of the taunt. Because when the text says, where, 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 see, that's the taunting language Rabshakeh used against uh, the Jerusalemites to say, look at the powerlessness of your God, Yahweh. He hasn't delivered a single nation from out among us. But that taunt is now turned back on them. Where is the den? There's no lions. There's no cubs. I have killed them all. So what the question implies is that this city has already vanished. It's like a certain outcome. This military defeat is so catastrophic, it's like we're staring into a wasteland, an abandoned territory where lions used to roam. Well, Nahum's second poem then ends with direct speech from the Lord. Shifting back in time to well before the battle, and the Lord speaks the most terrifying words a person could ever hear. Behold, take note, I am against you. I am against you. Because God is for Judah, he is against Nineveh. This is an utterance of the Lord, meaning it it certifies that this is a sure thing. The Lord of vengeance, think the first poem, avenging is the Lord. The Lord takes vengeance. A vengeful God is Yahweh. Well, the Lord of vengeance, the master of wrath, challenges Nineveh here and identifies himself as the attacker. Although we see boots on the ground as an agent of a kind, some foreign power attacking Nineveh in the imagery, the Lord doesn't actually tell us who that is because he is taking responsibility. He is saying, I am the heavenly administrator of justice. As the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies of heavenly powers, he's the commander who subdues his enemies and establishes his kingdom. As we find in Psalm 46, the Lord of hosts brings desolations in the earth, right? He breaks the bow, uh, bends the spear, and burns the chariots with fire. And the reason he does that is because he will be exalted among the nations and in all the earth. And so here, the Lord promises four judgments as covenant avenger. First, he's going to burn Nineveh's chariots with smoke. And smoke here is referring to the, the smoke that comes up from a, the city that is, is on fire after its uh, destruction. And the destruction of weapons there, including chariots, this is a common curse in uh, ancient Near Eastern treaties. And so the Lord is basically 
describing himself or portraying himself as the covenant avenger that's described in Exodus chapter 15. There, in that chapter, God is called, the, the Lord is called the man of war who destroys chariots. And so Nineveh is coming face to face with the man of war. And secondly, the Assyrian king's offspring will die by the sword. And we should expect that because he'd promised to cut off the seed of the king in the first poem. Thirdly, the Lord will cut off Assyria's prey, by, by which here it's meant to cut off access to prey. So no longer is the lion going to be able to prowl and find prey uh, as, as a result of being cut off. So it's by these second and third judgments then that the lion metaphor now is triggered in reverse, right? I will put your cubs to death and you will have no prey. This metaphor is being reversed in the sense that the Assyrian lion hunter king becomes the hunted lion. The one who thought of himself as taking out the lions is being taken out by the great Lord and shepherd, the Lord of Judah. See, as the great shepherd, he is protecting his people Judah by destroying the, the, those who are a threat to them. And so, as an ironic reversal, the Lord comes and wipes out Nineveh. And finally, the fourth judgment is the silence of Assyria's messengers. Now, these are diplomats and emissaries, right? So they're deployed throughout the empire, and their job is to establish or enforce treaties or to threaten military action uh, should, a, uh, should a, a city or a nation fail to submit to Assyria. But we shouldn't miss here the connection to the end of the first poem. Do you remember how that ended? Chapter 115 promised that no longer would the worthless Assyrians pass through Judah. That was the promise as the word of the Lord. And now, no longer will Assyria's messenger's voice be heard. So this messenger motif, the picture of a messenger at the end of both of these poems, should point something out to us here. See, Judah's messenger comes along with good news. Nineveh has been defeated. It's over. The battle is done. The victory is won. And that's for the victor, Judah. So what's the corresponding reality for the messengers of Nineveh? Well, it's silence because they are dead. Nineveh has been destroyed. And we're met after a very noisy and chaotic text, a, a description of battle and warfare and violence and bloodshed and screaming with sudden silence. There's no longer captains shouting commands. There's no longer priestesses screaming out loud. Instead, the noises of war and daily life vanish and the sound of the curse arrives. Silence. The voice of Judah's enemy disappears, assuring Judah that their deliverance has been accomplished. And so we see now that the second poem tells us that the, shows us that the Lord knew that Judah needed something more than just an announcement of their deliverance. If it was enough to just tell them that they would be delivered, 
then we wouldn't have three poems in Nahum. We just have the first. But we don't. You see, here the Lord, by describing this battle scene and, and actually making concrete the reality of their deliverance, what the Lord does is strengthen their faith. And he does that by recounting the past as proof that he did not forget the sins, the evil that was committed against Judah. He remembers and has numbered everything that Nineveh did to them. Yes, the Lord permitted Assyria to afflict them, right? We learned that also in the first poem because of their sin. But the Lord did number every atrocity and he promises now that he has, he is going to pour all of those back out upon Assyria. Justice will be done in proportion to their transgressions. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And further, the Lord demonstrates that the judgment upon Assyria is also their deliverance. So justice is done and a deliverance takes place. By defeating their enemies, the Lord would simultaneously deliver Judah and manifest his mercy to them. See, Judah wasn't told when this would happen, when the battle would occur, when their deliverance would come to fruition. But this poem is good news to them. It is a comfort to them as they await the final deliverance of it. And so this is the therapeutic effect of the retribution principle. And what we mean by that is part of being made in the image of God is having a sense of justice, right? We're, we're endowed with a judicial capacity that makes us, as it's inherent in our makeup, makes us w- want to see justice done. And so when people get what they deserve, that's part of restoration. Now, this is very contra modern conceptions of how justice should work. In fact, contemporary legal scholarship uh, tends to have a, a generalized antipathy towards retributive justice claiming that it actually doesn't help you cope. Rather, it's barbaric and antiquated. But clearly from our passage, we can see that judgment brings out of chaos order. And that when justice is done in the face of injustice, that comfort is offered to people who've been afflicted by grave sins. And as New Covenant believers... This anatomy of justice and deliverance is hope uh, in which we participate as well. You see, like the, the like the Judeans, we've been given a clear picture of what judgment will look like for our enemies. As the Confession of Faith tells us, God has appointed a day to judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. Think with me for a second. What do the living creatures say in Revelation chapter 6? O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You see, as we see in Revelation 6, as the, as the judgments are recounted upon the rich, the powerful, uh, the generals, everyone, slave and free, there is a restoration as justice is accomplished. However, 
The last judgment is only a mercy for God's people because of Christ's work. The reason the confession says what it says about what the judgment is like for God's people is because of Christ's work. See, Revelation chapter 5 describes Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Davidic king on the throne who has reversed the fortunes of his people. He's been found worthy to open the scroll, but the worthiness to do so is tied to his shed blood, for which he is called the lamb who was slain. You see, the Lord of hosts who commands all the armies of heaven and who will eventually defeat all enemies in the entire earth is none other than Jesus Christ. But for us, the battle being described is not future, but past. We don't look to a future battle, but to a past battle, a scene in which the head of the enemy was crushed. You see, through Christ's shed blood, the power of our enemies was stripped on the cross. The full marshaled power of Satan was scattered. His messengers were silenced. And Jesus incapacitated sin and death through his own death and his resurrection so that he binds the strong man and plunders the spoils. And so even as we share in Christ's resurrection and the victory that he wins for us on the cross, although that defeat of the enemies was accomplished on the cross, we wait for our final deliverance at Christ's return. What's clear to us, though, is that as members of the new covenant, we have a a charter for how to respond to injustice. See, clearly we are going to face tribulations and trials, persecutions. We will suffer at the hands of our enemies. But Jesus says some surprising words to us in the fifth chapter of Matthew's gospel. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, we don't get justice by vigilantism. Just like Judah, we don't have an instrumentality in justice on our enemies. The Lord has appointed the means of justice. Uh, yes, to some extent, the, the temporally, the, the state may punish evildoers. But ultimately, final judgment is the Lord accomplishing his justice on the last day. And so, for this reason, Paul writes in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that's what we saw here in Nahum's second poem. The Lord is the covenant avenger. And in light of this, we are freed to forgive our enemies. And this does not mean that God overlooks sin. To pray for your enemies, for those who persecute you, is not for God to overlook sin, but simply that it is not ours to avenge. Rather, we should, we should truly desire that others would experience the same mercy that we have received. For if you truly understand the power of the cross and the nature of grace and what you have been the recipient of in the forgiveness of your sins, you would pray for your enemies. 
And when we pray for our enemies and they're saved, justice is still done because the wrath for their sin is levied on Christ like it was for yours. So your enemies may be destroyed in the last judgment, but you should pray that they will be destroyed, in a sense, by God's grace and remade as new creations, being forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this would express a true understanding of the magnitude of the grace you have received, but the power of the cross. Nonetheless, we look forward in great hope to the return of Christ. And we look forward to that day of judgment because, as our confession tells us again, Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment. Why? For the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. The day of judgment is good news for you because the day of judgment of your enemies is your deliverance. And it is the day when justice is done. It is the day when every wrong is put right. It is where order is restored. And in it we experience mercy, even as the Lord judges the enemies. So then the confession continues, For then shall go the righteous into everlasting life and receive the fullness of joy and the refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. The fullness of joy and the refreshing which shall come uh, from the presence of the Lord. This is heaven, brothers and sisters. Joy and refreshing. And this sure promise of the Lord, this is our comfort to us. This is the news of deliverance and justice that comforts us until Christ returns. So therefore praise the Lord Christ, the Lion of Judah, and the Lamb who was slain, our Savior, Deliverer, and Comforter. Amen. Let's pray.